If you have ever had a chance to walk in a forest when the autumn colors are at their peak and the gentle rain makes them even brighter, then maybe you have been in awe. Or you stood at the precipice of the Grand Canyon and looked down the 4,000 feet to the Colorado River below. Then maybe you have been in awe. So welcome today to In Awe by Bruce. Today we have Tremper Longman III on the line. He's an Old Testament scholar, theologian, author of well more than 20 books, including How to Read the Psalms, How to Read the Proverbs. He actually won the ECPA Christian Book Award for the Dictionary of the Old Testament, um, co-authored many books with his good friend Dan Allender, and he recently retired as a professor of biblical studies from Westmount College in California. So thank you for joining us today, Tremper. We appreciate you taking your time to, to answer some of our questions and help the people listening understand how awe works in your life. Thank you, Bruce, for having me. Glad to have you here. And so, you know, I'm going to just start off kind of with a basic question. What is your view of being in awe of God? What does that mean to you? I think that being in awe of God means that you recognize that God is your creator, that he's sovereign over you, that he loves you, and that mm-hmm. that instills within us when we realize that, you know, a proper respect but reverence. And even one of my areas of, of study is the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and of course, uh, the fear of God is a repetitive refrain. It's actually the basic point of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Matter of fact, I uh-huh. last year published a book on the wisdom literature, and the name of it is Fear of the Lord, a Theological Introduction to Wisdom in Israel, because I think proper awe of God is at the heart of what our relationship with him is all about. Mm, I like the way you said that, uh, the proper perspective of it because you know I, I really think it is I think it does drive so much and that's why I'm doing this podcast I think it drives so much what yeah. we are maybe can you expand on that a little bit more in the sense that when we think about our relationship with God we rightly might first think of our relationship as a love relationship God does love us and we love him but uh, the Bible is really clear both Old and New Testament. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is not just like our best friend that we hang out with. This is mm-hmm. this is the sovereign of the universe, that everything exists because of him, including ourselves. And that should instill with us, within us awe or, if you prefer, fear of the Lord. It's not a kind of fear that makes you run away. One of the reasons why I will sometimes use fear rather than awe, sometimes the word awe indicates, you know, kind of a open mouth wonder at God, which we certainly should have. But the fear of the Lord also is closely connected to uh, our obedience of him and our willing to listen to him. So if we're in awe of God, we fear God, then we want to hear what he has to say to us. It breeds within us a kind of humility uh, as opposed to pride. If we're on an equal par with God or we think of him as just a older brother or 
the danger is that we wouldn't drive us to the kind of obedience that we have. So just to make the point that this is a New Testament idea, too, remember that Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, or if you prefer, awe and trembling. So it's really at the center of who we are. When John in First John says perfect love casts out fear, it's not talking about the fear of God. It's talking about the fear of other people. That God's perfect love for us, or if you prefer our love for God, means that we don't have to fear other people because we're in awe of God. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yes. So those are some thoughts that I have about that. I'm glad you're fleshing that out because, you know, I, I think, Tremper, of, you know, where it, it talks about Hebrews, you know, to run into the throne room of God. And, and that can be confusing for somebody thinking that, you know, uh, how can I do that when I'm supposed to fear him in the normal sense that we think of fear? You see, I think, what, you know, as a Hebrew scholar, one of the often issues is that our English words don't line up perfectly with Hebrew words. So you're often needing to qualify. There's no perfect word to render in English the term yerat, which is the form of fear that occurs in a place like Proverbs 1-7. So the way I often qualify it is this is a kind of fear that you don't run away, but rather leads to obedience. Awe and reverence are also really good terms to capture that, too, as long as you realize that it's not just a contemplative awe. It's more than that. It's awe that leads to listening to God, being open to what he tells us, particularly through scripture, I would suggest, Mm -hmm. and also to obey him. That kind of leads me to a second question that I had for you. What was it? that impacted you or kicked off this inspiration in your life because to write the books you have written, to teach like you have, to dive into all these you know, different things in the Old Testament and bring them out so people can understand them just happen out of nothing. <laughs> well, this, this goes back into ancient history since you know I'm 66 <laughs> now and uh, <laughs> I became a Christian during my last year in high school essentially, there in Columbus and up Arlington High School. Let me preface this by saying I don't agree with the interpretive method used by Hal Lindsey of the late great planet Earth. A friend of mine gave me a copy of that book, which was very popular back in the late 60s, early 70s. Indeed, was the best-selling book in the English language except the Bible until Purpose Driven Life beat it out. But... Uh, <laughs> But when I read it, it really confronted me with the fact that God was an awesome God. He was a God who was going to save his people and judge those who weren't on uh, his side and were resisting his will. Even though I don't agree with how Lindsay's interpretive method, he got the basic point. Right. <laughs> and it, and to be honest, that's one of the reasons, and I talk about this in my forthcoming book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, where I talk about the difficult theme of the violence of God. I say we kind of run away from the idea of God as a 
judge thinking that we're making God more palatable or mm-hmm. conducive to contemporary culture, whereas my own experience was, no, I mean, I being confronted with the fact that our God is a God not only of deep, deep love, but also one who, for purposes of justice, will not just let sin go by the wayside. And it drew me to him. So on the one hand, I, I, I don't think we ought to go around preaching and teaching judgment all the time. But on the other hand, I think the tendency this day is to kind of make God acceptable to our broader culture. And I think it's kind of wrong-minded to do that. I'm glad you're tying those two together because I think what you're saying is that that reverence, that fear and awe of God loses an effect if we don't look at the fact that God is just. Yeah, that that's right. He, oh, it does. Right? Yeah. yeah, and in that forthcoming book, I have a great quote from the theologian Miroslav Volf, teaches at Yale now, who reflects on his youth in Croatia, and he begins during the Balkan Wars, and he begins by saying, through that experience, he came to realize that God is not a God of wrath, and he's really not a God of love. And it's a beautiful, beautiful expression of, and Miroslav's, you know, no sort of right-wing, conservative, negative thinking type of person. He's a balanced theologian who's Mm -hmm. talking kind of counterculturally when he says that. Getting back to the Hal Lindsey story, that's kind of the beginning of the story. And then at that point, I went off to college, and it was during the Jesus Revolution, and a lot of people were becoming Christians, including my best friend, Dan Allender, whom you mentioned. We've been going to school together since eighth grade. He became a Christian while we were in, in school, and that's where I met my wife, Alice. And Christian life and the professional life isn't always on an upward trajectory, but but I I would say particularly as I reflect on God through the reading of Scripture that when I read Scripture prayerfully, it really confronts me with this awesome God and mm-hmm. motivates me to keep exploring who he is, and and that leads to my teaching and my writing ministry. Then my my next question is, and this maybe hasn't happened, but I know it does in my life. <laughs> what, yeah. Anything distract you from from that reverence for God? And yeah. if so, how do you recapture it in your life? Ah, uh, you know that's that's. I, of course, I, I personally I. I would say anybody who says they haven't been distracted is either not being honest or is yeah. minded. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh-huh. there's so many that can distract you, professional ambitions, difficulties in your personal life, you know, kids who get in trouble or, you know, there are a whole host of things that distract you. I mean, John Calvin also put it another way. He said, the human mind is a factory of idols, you know, so you're constantly <laughs> battling idols, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. you know, trying to be the best at your career or needing money or wanting more money, 
we make idols out of so many things, including good things like our our families, our relationships, or even our church or ministry. Usually, what calls me back is first of all a realization that idols always let you down. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, actually, where this the teacher tries to find meaning and life under the sun and various things, and uh, including wisdom itself, not and money and work and so forth, and it lets him down. You know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And at the end, you get a second wise man who's talking to his son about the teacher, who says to his son, you know, son, what the teacher says is 100% right. That is, life is difficult and then you die, as long as you try to find meaning under the sun. And then he mm-hmm. concludes with those famous, the famous admonition, brief but powerful, you know, fear God, obey his commandments, uh. and live in the light of the future judgment. So right there he he says, put God first, and then everything else can find its proper place. But the other thing, God also uses my wife in very positive ways in my life. and <laughs> We pray together a lot, and she's just so wonderful at um, reminding me when I begin to get distracted, as you say, uh-huh. from proper relationship with God. So I'm very thankful. God gave us our now 45-year-old marriage. We got married while wow. we were in college back there in the day. <laughs> wow, congratulations. That's great. And then wow. God also so, uses friends like yeah. Dan Allender and others that, um, yeah. you know, having good friendships will often keep you real and grounded and so forth. Good insight for everybody, and I, I love the, your line, idols let you down. <laughs> yeah, really... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's expand that a little bit. You know, what would help the church today increase or maintain its reverence for God? You know, I'm a big advocate of biblical preaching and teaching and and a well-rounded kind of teaching and preaching, not just kind of selective parts. And a real the church really I think needs to be committed to know God, I mean, I think, and realize that it's a lifelong process. One of the things I like to point out to people as regards the concept of the fear of the Lord is that, first of all, it's not a something that you get once and you always have it. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not like you're wise and you'll always be wise, kind of like getting a Ph.D. You know, somebody gets a Ph.D. and they're always doctor whatever, even if they should have a stroke and not be able to speak. They're still doctor X. But wisdom you can lose when you lose the fear of the Lord, as Solomon uh, did. But the other thing is that wisdom's not a static concept that you can deepen your wisdom and that includes coming to an even deeper understanding of your fear of the Lord. That's the story of Job. Job at the beginning fears the Lord, but he fears the Lord more profoundly through the crucible of his suffering and he says, 
my ears had heard of you, now my eyes have seen you. So he's come mm-hmm. to a commitment. I guess what I'm getting at here is yeah, you know, a commitment to pursuing God. The church needs to have that commitment, and the and the leaders of the church need to teach and preach and mentor and guide people into a deeper relationship with God, which isn't always easy and involves study. I mean, I love the way the book of Proverbs in chapter 4, the father's telling his son, you know, son, work really hard, get wisdom. And then he concludes it by saying, and God gives wisdom. So it's not like... Mm -hmm. God giving wisdom means that we don't do anything. We just wait for God to zap us. But we need to pursue God, and he'll right. He'll bless us with deepening our faith in him, I believe. God responds to us as we respond to him in that relationship. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love one of the things why, you know, I think this is such an important interview in my view is that you're rich in the Old Testament. That's that's your forte and, and where you've spent so much time. And a lot of times people have a view that God was different in the Old Testament or it's a different, and yet he's not. And right. I, I thought I'd ask you a couple questions about that. Kind of flesh that out maybe a little bit for yeah. the listening who might have that. That's my passion. I mean, that's why I went into Old Testament studies, partly because I wanted to be – able to help Christians see that the Old Testament is a vital resource for our knowledge of God and our relationship with him. You know, especially today where I'm hearing some Christian leaders even suggesting that the Old Testament is obsolete or or problematic in some way. There's so much you can say here, I mean, <laughs> but uh, I'll begin with the fact that Jesus himself fully embraced and loved the Old Testament. He didn't criticize the Old Testament. He didn't distance himself from the Old Testament, even to the point in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount saying, you know, not a jot or tittle of the law will be uh, ended until it's accomplished. Now, some of the law is accomplished so that we don't observe it in the same way, but that's one way I would remind people, along with the fact that the New Testament itself is just permeated with the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Every book of the New Testament is just beating with the heart of the Old Testament. Uh, matter of fact, there's a new commentary series that's being produced called The New Testament Through Old Testament Eyes, where we Old Testament professors are writing on New Testament books, and I was able to choose what I wanted to write on, I chose the most permeated book, probably the book of Revelation. But uh, but, uh, <laughs> but then the other thing I would say is look at what Jesus himself says in Luke 24 on two occasions. He's talking after he's been raised, but before he ascends into heaven, he meets with, uh, first of all, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and then with a larger group of disciples. And both times he says to them that the entire Old Testament, now he doesn't say Old Testament, he says the Law and the Prophets or the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms or simply Scriptures, all of it looked forward to his coming. So based on that, what I would say, if you want to know Jesus better, read the Old Testament. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Because it, it, it's all fulfilled in him. And if you diss the Old Testament, then you're dissing Jesus himself, who is the mm-hmm. fulfillment of the Old Testament. And again, I would just say there there's so many riches there. But I know that this is why I, I was asked about five years ago to write the book, which is coming out in April, on controversial issues in the Old Testament, because they're the types of issues that keep people from appreciating the Old Testament and wanting them to to move away from the Old Testament. I discuss those issues, which are, again, evolution and divine violence and history and sexuality in in that book. So I'm hopeful that people will see that while there's there is indeed discontinuity with the Old Testament, there's tremendous continuity as well. And even in those areas like sacrifice or the waging of warfare, there's discontinuity, but there's also continuity. The physical warfares of the Old Testament are the background to the spiritual warfare of the New Testament, which will lead ultimately to the final judgment in the book of Revelation. So I just would encourage your listeners to really dive into the Old Testament. Find out for yourself. Get a good readable translation and and maybe with a good study Bible times where things seem difficult to understand and and then you can move forward from from there yes good to make sure that we're doing that because there is it's all connected now that brings me to a, a next thought which is as a professor in teaching classes were there times when you looked out and the people in your class were surprised maybe about something that was just kind of blew them away or order that taught them a, something different than what they thought from the Old Testament that really kind of increased <laughs> their view of God and, and that? Yeah, may, I hope it's not narcissism that would lead me to say that that actually happens a lot. And the reason why, partly because a number of, because of the ethos in the church these days really haven't had any exposure to the Old Testament. So in a sense, or if they have, they've been pulled certain things that they've kind of believed as being the case. First of all, I usually begin my classes by saying, you know, this is the word of God. And in my opinion, it is without error, if you prefer, inerrant, in everything that it intends to teach. But then I go on at some later point and say, but you know, our interpretations are not inerrant. Now, there are certain things that are taught so clearly that you'd have to be extremely mischievous to to doubt that the Bible teaches it. And those are the matters that relate to our salvation. You know, those things are really clear. But things like how do Genesis 1 and 2 relate to, you know, modern scientific explanations of creation, or we could go down a whole host of issues and just honestly say that there is room for discussion here about a proper interpretation. I think the church's teachers, including myself, need to be really, really careful about those things that aren't central to salvation to say, you know, if if you believe X about the Bible, 
then yeah. you're not really a Christian or you're not really right. following the Bible. So there have been occasions where, for instance, you know, I talk about, uh, we just mentioned um, warfare. I talk of, you know, a lot of people, that's one area where people think, yeah, hey, the Old Testament is completely at odds with the New Testament. And when I talk about it and show how, no, the Old Testament and the New Testament are of one mind about God's warfare against evil, though there is discontinuity as Jesus heightens and intensifies the warfare so it goes against the spiritual powers and authorities. And against those enemies, you use spiritual weapons like Ephesians 6.10 and following talks about. So I think sometimes it's a wonderful feeling, you know, to be lecturing and and seeing people see things for the first time. But again, I think in one sense, unfortunately, the reason why it's easy to do that is because there isn't a lot of teaching on the Old Testament going on in our churches these days. That's one of my sort of mission goals is to encourage people to teach more about the Old Testament in our churches. This is this is where I could put in that advertising plug because uh, your Old Testament essentials, creation, conquest, exile, oh. and return, you know, was one that we did at our church. We had you come in and talk, and and I got to actually teach that for my the Bible study I lead. Got to use it then. It was it was great to have those concepts melded into what people know about the New Testament to realize how much everything flows. And how consistent the message is, and, and what it all means. So I just, you know, I'll throw that plug in real quick. Well, thanks, Bruce. I appreciate it. And just for the listeners, Tremper was several years older than me, so I first met you because one of your other good friends lived next door to where I live. Yeah, right, and right. Yeah. You guys were the football football stars, and coming over, and we were throwing the football around in the yard. You'd throw to us and stuff, and that was. <laughs> We always thought that was so cool, but... <laughs> well, I was a center, so I wasn't very good at throwing the ball. But we are, I think you know, we're coming back for our 50th anniversary of winning the state championship back in... Yes, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that'll yeah. be fun. All right, looking forward to a that. Lot of, a lot of people on that team became Christians, too, and they're walking with the Lord today, which is great. Wow. That that really brings me to the to the last thing I was going to ask you about, which was... You know, how inspiring. Dan Allender was on that team. Dan mm. Allender is one of your closest friends, yeah. uh, maybe your best friend. Uh, yeah. What's it like for you two to write together the inspiration and the, you know, synergy and the, the brothership and the fellowship? You know, maybe can you give us a little insight into that? I could go on forever, but I won't. I, <laughs> as I said, became a Christian before going to college. Dan hadn't become a Christian yet, but he was my roommate and became a Christian like our sophomore year. And then we decided, well, he says, I decided to go off to seminary and he had nothing better to do. So he came to <laughs> And uh, long story short, uh, my path took me to Yale to do a PhD in ancient Near Eastern languages and literature. And his took him down to a church in Florida where he met Larry Crabb and oh, he yeah. became, they worked together for a number of years. He became uh, the well-known 
Christian counselor that he is today. But in 1984, before either of us were, I think I, I hadn't even published my first book, and Dan uh, hadn't either. Larry and Dan invited a colleague of mine, Ray Dillard, uh, and I to come down to attend a church conference they were doing, and they asked us to come down and critique their use of the Bible. Well, to make a long story mm-hmm. short, we were able, I think, to give them some insight on that, but even more so, we were feeling like they were giving us insight on our own lives, and it was at this conference that Dan and I talked, and basically, I, uh, Dan said, I want to be a counselor who's biblical, and I said, well, I want to be a biblical scholar who is really in touch with life. And because and, I could have very easily gone off on a sort of pure ivory tower academic track. And yeah. right from that point, we started working together. We teach together every year, going up in about five weeks to teach with them up in at Seattle School for Theology and Psychology, where he, a school that he helped found. And so it's been a wonderful relationship that does go back ultimately to Jones Junior High School there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, amazing. Yeah, yeah. We were best that, men that's in the be just, wedding and all that kind of stuff. That, that's just got to be thrilling to be able to, you know, watch how God's worked through both of your lives. Just right there you gave us such a great example of you know, how God can bring the two of you together to do something in conjunction that that makes both of you that much more effective for him. Wow. And and we both deeply respect each other, so so we were able to write together, you know, we're mm-hmm. able to listen to each other's criticisms and affirmations and so forth. So it's been a blast. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Thank you for kind of bringing that, that what I, I feel like is like a breath of fresh air to get us back to thinking about the Old Testament and, and having that fear and awe and reverence for God. And, and thank you for all your work in doing that and the fact that that's your passion. Uh, that's something that all of us can pray for, that that you and all of us could be successful in making that everybody so much more aware of this. So thanks so much, Tremper, for joining us. Thank you, Bruce.